get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast you can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Kobe Cole, and this is the story of Janet Jackson. Now, in this podcast, you're going to hear clips from an interview I did with Janet in 2000. Uh-huh. <laughs> you might want to turn this down a little bit. All right. Turn that down a <laughs> That's bit. funny. Yeah. As you can hear, we had a lot of fun talking about her career up until that point, which was sort of a defining moment for her. So in this interview that you'll be hearing clips from, at this particular point, she had numerous hit albums under her belt and was about to release her sixth album. This was before her infamous Super Bowl appearance, which I'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast. Janet, the last Jackson child from the most famous music family ever, has had an unbelievable career that most people just don't know about. She sold over 100 million records, which only a handful of artists in the world have done. With the recent passing of her father, Joe Jackson, the patriarch of the Jackson family, and all the remembrances... The main focus has really been on Michael and the Jackson 5, but the story of Janet Jackson is quite remarkable and legendary. I recently listened to my first Janet Jackson interview and did my usual backstory research and felt it was a good time to kind of share this interview and tell her story. So you'll learn about her groundbreaking album, Control. Working with Jimmy and Terry, meeting up with them for the first time, connecting, uh, going to Minneapolis and, and writing and recording also her historic rise in the shadow of her older brother michael and also during the time of this interview she had recently been divorced and we talked about dating janet jackson well that's what all for you talks about is Mm -hmm. wanting really someone to come up to me and ask me out because i've always the guys i've gone out with i've always asked them out let's get things started before we go any further i have to admit up front that i have always been a janet jackson fan Growing up watching television before cable, you would remember any of the black faces you would see on TV. And Janet Jackson was on Good Times as a child and Different Strokes as a teenager. So every kid knew who Janet Jackson was. In addition, her first three albums were as perfect as you can get for an artist trying to outdo previous work. Up until this moment, she notoriously did not do a lot of interviews, especially very early in her career. But I was able to snag one from her only because of my co-host. So let me break this down. I was on a high-profile morning show in Philadelphia called The Dream Team, and my co-host was Wendy Williams, who you now all know from the Wendy Williams talk show. My operation manager, Helen Little, was working to get us an interview with Janet, but Janet's people were not interested in doing an interview with Wendy, fearing that she could ask a question that Janet didn't want to answer. But our rep for Virgin Records at the time, a woman by the name of Beverly Garvin, who has been a longtime friend, said, you know what, hold up a minute. I think I'm going to be able to get this interview done, but you're going to have to come to Janet. I'm like, okay. So she arranged for me to come to her hotel suite at the Four Seasons to do this interview. Oh, my God. I had so much anxiety. Now, at that moment in my career, I had interviewed President Clinton, Quincy Jones, Minister Louis Farrakhan. I had interviewed every rapper alive. But there was something about sitting down with Janet Jackson, and not even in my environment, but hers, and in a presidential suite at the Four Seasons Hotel. Uh, yeah, I was a mess. What's this too loud? Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> you might want to turn this down a little bit. All right. Turn that down a little <laughs> That's bit. funny. Yeah. I have that loud voice. 
As the interview went on, I got more comfortable, especially the dating segment. And yeah, <laughs> I went there dead ass, broke my own rules. <laughs> would you Day like to one. go out tonight? Actually, I would love that, but I can't. Oh, unfortunately, See, I, no, I have. I really do have to work. OK. And I have to go back to New York. OK. But, you know, I'm going to give you my business card. So we'll, 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 we're going to go out on a date one you time. You did that already. Yeah, I did. You noticed I slipped it to you when I first it came is. in. I'm slick. I did. Now, there is more to this story. One of my fondest memories of working with Janet Jackson was when Kobe Cole from Philly uh, was interviewing her. I felt like they had a casual flirtatious thing going on there. <laughs> and then I realized that Kobe kind of asked her out on a date. And she said, yeah, I would go out with you. And that's when I realized I had to step in. And I'll own up to this a little bit later on. But first, let me tell you Janet's backstory. Janet Demita Joe Jackson was born in Gary, Indiana on May 16, 1966, the youngest of 10 children from Catherine and Joe Jackson, the parents behind one of the greatest musical lineages in modern history. And if you don't know the story of the Jackson patriarch and matriarch, I'll give you a quick review. The Jackson's roots are from the South. Like most of us, whoever we live at in America, our family probably came from the South. Joe Jackson was born in Arkansas, but grew up in Oakland, California, where he lived with his father. At 18, he relocated to East Chicago, Indiana, where his mother was living so he could pursue a dream of being a professional boxer. Now, Katherine Jackson, she was born in Alabama, and her family relocated to East Chicago, Indiana. And during this time, a lot of people from the South, like I said a few minutes, seconds ago, migrated up north to the Rust Belt for job opportunities. And in this particular area, it was steel mill jobs and auto jobs. A lot of factory jobs were up north. East Chicago, Indiana is a small town in Indiana on the outskirts of Chicago. Joe and Catherine met and got married when he was 21 and she was 19. They immediately started a family. Joe curtailed his boxing dreams because he felt that was no way to raise his family, and he got a steel mill crane operation job. The family bought a house on 2300 Jackson Street in the nearby working-class city of Gary, Indiana, which is 25 miles east of Chicago. The Jackson family grew up over the next 16 years, starting with the birth of the oldest child, Reby Jackson, in 1950, then Jackie, then Tito, then Jermaine, then LaToya, then twins Marlon and Brandon, who sadly died 24 hours after he was born. Of course, the legend himself, Michael Jackson, came next, then Randy, and the baby of the bunch, Janet. So, as the story goes, Joe wanted to do something big. He was a hardworking man, and he had tried boxing, but that didn't really pan out. So he formed a band himself in the 50s called the Falcons. Now, that didn't pan out. One of the things about Joe Jackson was he wanted to be a star himself. Um, but while he was doing his thing with his band, he noticed the musical talent of his kids, starting with Tito, who could play the guitar. So it was that point in 1964, a few years before Janet arrived, that Joe formed a group consisting of Tito, Jermaine, and Jackie called the Jackson Brothers. Joe was their manager, and this trio would do local talent shows. In 1966, he added Marlon and Michael and changed the name to the Jackson Five. Joe was rough on his boys. They didn't have regular childhoods. It was sort of like go to school and then practice. It was very intense as they would travel all over the region, performing in the strangest places, including the kind of places that kids shouldn't be. In 1967, they performed at the Apollo Theater in Harlem and won Amateur Night. 
In January of 1968, the group released their first song called Big Boy. Then a year later, they signed with Motown Records, which at that time in history was the center of the music universe in the not-too-far-away city of Detroit. The Jackson 5 gave Joe the success he always dreamed of. And as their manager, they churned out numerous number one hits and had fans all across the world. A young toddler, Janet Jackson, was watching all of this happen around her. Her family moved to a big mansion in California in the early 70s. This was her childhood, watching her brothers release several albums. She also saw the influence of music mogul Barry Gordy and what he was doing and a rift it caused with Joe. When the Jackson 5 success started to slow down and their record contract was up with Motown, Joe would take the boys who were now teenagers and men and sign them to a lucrative album deal with Epic Records. Now, one of the issues that they were having with Motown was that they were jerking them on money, like most artists at that time. And Epic offered a deal five times what they were getting, which was a no-brainer. The architect behind the Epic deal was considered a fool. Most of the labels felt that they were a teen act and they were coming down and they would never be as big as they were as teens. But this particular executive was not just betting on the Jacksons. He was betting on Michael Jackson as a solo artist. What also complicated things at this time was that Jermaine Jackson was dating Barry Gordy's daughter, Hazel, and chose not to leave Motown. So the group was renamed the Jacksons, and Jermaine had a solo career on Motown. It was a very awkward time. Now, Michael was dabbling as a solo artist around this time as well, releasing four albums on Motown while also recording with the Jackson 5. Joe was the mastermind behind this. He had these kids working nonstop. I mean, in addition to the music, they had a cartoon and a variety series on television. But as young men with this new deal with Epic, they found a new energy working with the legendary producers Gamble and Huff in Philadelphia. Now, a few podcasts ago, I did a podcast on Kenny Gamble, and we talked about the Jacksons. You give them the most soulful album. Yeah. And, and um, I used to work with Jimmy Bishop's uh, son, who was a radio personality, and he told me stories about when they were recording this album, how Michael Jackson and Jackson 5 came to Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and they actually lived here in Philadelphia. Yeah, and um, there's so many people that have a lot of memories of them, and you guys took them in the studio, and you dropped Enjoy, Enjoy Yourself. Enjoy Yourself. And then you had another record, Good Times, and Let, let, let me, me Show, show you, you the, the Way, way to Go. go. Wow, oh, that's man. a good one, yeah. And you can go back and check that backstory podcast out the early 70s was a different time music was changing disco was the new vibe and the jacksons were working with gamble and huff and gave them a new energy with the music that they put out on epic and this eventually led to michael jackson striking out on his own so during the summer of 78 michael was living in new york city he was filming the whiz disco was huge he was working with quincy jones he kind of grew tired of his dad's management style and he fired him His relationship with Quincy grew into a friendship, and Quincy, who had been doing all types of music, agreed to produce his next solo album. Now, the people at Epic weren't really excited about Quincy Jones doing a Michael Jackson album. They wanted him to be with other producers, but he felt a connection with Quincy Jones. And keep in mind, his experiences living in New York at that time, it was the disco scene. He was going to uh, Studio 54 and just kind of feeling out the energy of the New York club scene at a really fertile time in music. And this really fueled his breakthrough solo album, Off the Wall, which was released in 1979. It sold a staggering 20 million plus albums, making Michael a bona fide solo star. 
there was so much career correlation between Michael and Janet. And coming up on the Backstory Podcast, America meets the baby of the family, Janet Jackson, via acting roles. Then she has a breakthrough solo album of her own, just like her big brother, Michael. I love creating music, and you, you, I do what I do because I really love it. And I, I didn't know if it was going to be successful or not. We'll also discuss how a movie role changed her. The change that had come while making Poetic Justice, it just it, it completely changed me. I went over a quick synopsis of the Jackson family. Janet, being the baby... Growing into a little girl, then teenagers watched this 11-year period from 1969 to 1980, absorbing all the success and massive change in the family and in the music business while trying to figure out her own lane. Joe, again, was her manager, similar to Michael and the rest of the Jacksons. And one of the first things he did was get her involved in acting. The first time most of America saw the princess of the Jackson clan was on a variety show in 1975. Think about this, kind of like how today we're flooded with reality shows on TV. Well, back then there were less TV channels because nobody really had cable, but every network had some sort of variety show or a special variety show would fill in in the winter or in the summer. And you should Google this appearance of a young Janet Jackson and a young Randy. I think it was the Cher Variety Show. And in this skit, legendary comedian and 70s TV icon Carol Burnett walks on stage with Randy Jackson. And they talk about doing their own version of Sonny and Cher. By the way, Sonny and Cher singing couple were a huge deal in the early 70s and they had a TV show. I'm thinking this was Cher's show, but I'm not sure whose show it was. But anyway... So there, Randy and Carol Burnett are talking about doing their own version of Sonny and Cher, and then a cute little Janet Jackson interrupts them and proclaims it was her time to perform like Cher. So then her and Randy perform, and the beat goes on, and then all the Jackson 5 come out to back her up. This was our first introduction of Janet. The Jacksons had their own variety show in Vegas where Janet was doing several skits live on stage. And this got the attention of TV producers. And they eventually gave the family a variety series that ran for 12 episodes on TV in 1977 and 1978. Again, as a kid growing up, you always remember black faces when you see them on TV. And the Jacksons were sort of like such a big deal for black America. So we all watch these shows. And this particular variety show would be whoever the big star of the time that was, they would kind of guest host and they would work with the Jacksons and do all kind of skits. You can look at some of this stuff on YouTube. It's actually pretty funny to look at. So Janet started to shine in a lot of these segments. She loved old movies, which would be a theme in future music videos, and she would impersonate famous actresses. In fact, Google Janet Jackson as Mae West, and that's a funny skit that you can see Janet do. Janet would then appear on one of the most popular TV shows in America, Good Times. This show resonated with all Americans, but specifically black Americans, but it was one of the most watched television shows on TV, and it was about a poor black family living in the Cabrini Green projects in Chicago and all that would go wrong living in a hood in 70s America. Janet Jackson played a preteen named Penny Woods who was being abused by her mother, who was played by actress Chip Fields, who was the real-life mother of actress Kim Fields. Janet's portrayal of an abused child captivated audiences across the country. It also cemented her as an actress on the rise. I'm sure as a kid it was tough for her to play a character like that. 
A few years following Good Time, she appeared on another very successful TV show called Different Strokes. Again, we didn't have cable television, so there weren't a lot of shows that you saw black faces on TV. And if you did, you would not forget the show. Different Strokes was a show about two poor black kids from Harlem whose mother was a maid and the mother dies and they are adopted by a rich white man and they move to Park Avenue in New York, which is sort of like, you know, going from the hood to, you know, to to being wealthy. On this show, Janet was a beautiful teenager and she played the girlfriend of Different Strokes co-star Todd Bridges, who himself at that time was a teen heartthrob. So the two of those together was always a hot topic. This was way before blogs and the Internet, so you had to read about this stuff in monthly magazines like the teen gossip magazines. It was during this time that on the strength of her father's management, Joe gets her a record deal with A&M Records. So then 16-year-old Janet Jackson releases her first solo album called Janet Jackson in 1982. She actually sung on an episode of Different Strokes to both Gary Coleman and Todd Bridges' characters. You should Google that and see it. You should also Google Janet Jackson on the Mike Douglas show where she is promoting this album. And I promise you, you'll get a kick out of just watching what a talk show looked like in the 70s. But also, and Janet appeared with her pet snake muscles. And in this interview, she talked about all of the cool animals that they had. So they were already collecting a bunch of animals. I guess Michael was known to collect a bunch of animals. And this snake was named Muscles. And it was named after the 1980s song called Muscles that Diana Ross recorded and Michael Jackson wrote and they talk about this in this Mike Douglas interview with Janet Jackson from 1982. This Janet Jackson debut album had no affiliation with any other Jackson in regards to producing or recording other than her father being her manager. She worked with the married producing team of Renee Moore and Angela Wimbush who would go on a few years later and record a string of hits on their own as Renee and Angela. And also Foster Silvers, who was a part of the teen group The Silvers, which was sort of like a poor man's Jackson 5. He also had a solo career as well. Another person that did background vocals on this particular album was Howard Hewitt, who would then go on to be in the group Shalimar. This album's most memorable track was Young Love, which rose to number six on the R&B charts. Now, the album didn't sell that much, nor did she have much pop success. But her TV career continued as she played Cleo on the TV adaptation of the film Fame. She would have a few solo performances on the show. It was also around this time when Janet had her first controversy, secretly eloping with James DeBarge, who was in the musical family DeBarge, who at this time had a string of R&B hits. The marriage was quickly annulled, and there were lots of rumors of a supposed love child between them, or Janet had gotten pregnant and disappeared. I mean, this has been talked for years, but it never really has been officially proven, nor has Janet ever talked about it. It was around... 1984, when Janet released her second album called Dream Street, which seemed more like a pop approach with a variety of producers, including Peter Beckett, who was the lead singer of a rock group called Player. You may not remember this group, but they had a song out at the time called Baby Come Back, which was a huge 70s song. Another producer on this album was the legendary Giorgio Moroder, 
who was an Italian producer more well-known for his disco songs, mainly with Donna Summers the decade prior. I mean, he wrote Love to Love You, Baby, I Feel Love, Last Dance, MacArthur Park on the radio. He also did a lot of music scores, famously doing a song called The Chase from the 70s movie called The Midnight Express, which was about an American trapped in a Turkish prison. It's a very good movie. You should check it out. And it should be a lesson to any foreigner going into another country doing illegal things. This song, The Chase, played throughout the movie. But to urban audiences, Giorgio Moroder also produced the entire Scarface movie soundtrack and all the disco pop songs heard in that movie. He did quite a bit of Janet's second album. Another producer on the album was Jesse Johnson, who was in the group at the time, and he produced a track that was Janet's kind of first introduction to that Minneapolis sound, which would soon change her career. One other producer on this album was her brother, Michael, and he produced the track All My Love to You and did background vocals. The one song that stood out on the album was the title track, Dream Street, which the video for this song was Janet's first video, and she explored her love for old movies. It had an old Hollywood appeal to it and told the story of a young person coming to Hollywood with big dreams to be famous and all that happens around it. You see a cameo of Debbie Allen, who worked with her on Fame, and Debbie choreographed the dance scenes in this video. The album reviews were really bad, considering all these great people that work with her, and the album sold around 20,000 copies. Now, usually in the music business, after two albums on a major label and not much success, this would normally end a career or you would get dropped. But it was at this point that Janet, similar to Michael eight years earlier, would take charge of her career. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast, Control Shocks the World. That change as opposed to not doing other uh, writers, producers work, but doing something of your own, expressing uh, the ins and outs of, of your own life. And Janet becomes a huge international star. Like I said, I love creating, I love writing, but also... Um, just being able to touch one person's life and hopefully making a difference. And I'll tell you about that whole dating thing between us and how an innocent conversation got a little serious. Is that okay. <laughs> someone's pager? Yeah, I, I thought so. it was mine for a second. <laughs> right. <laughs> I noticed your two-way uh, beat on uh, "Off for You" on the uh, oh. on, not not in here, but on the uh, on the album. You had the uh, a little interlude after "Off for You," and it was yes. sort of like a two-way version of the song. Yes. You know, you want to beam that to me before we leave here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, you have to laugh at that moment. All throughout this interview, her Motorola two-way pager kept going off. At this time in 2000, everybody had a two-way, and beaming was basically kind of what AirDrop is on Apple products now. Janet Jackson, after two subpar solo projects, decided to make a change at 19 years old. Now, remember, she witnessed all that was happening with her older brother's interaction with her father. He was very strict. And she bore the brunt of a lot of being the youngest child. He also had total control of her career up until that point. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm sure she saw what happened with Michael when he fired Joe. And historically, there was no way that he would have done the album off the wall the way it came out if Joe was still managing him. I'm sure it was tough, and I'm sure it strained the family, but the success he achieved after leaving his father was staggering, beyond anyone's imagination. So... A 19-year-old Janet Jackson, whose career was carefully orchestrated up until that point, no expense spared on her first two albums, and they were total stiffs, 
decides to fire her father as manager and sign with an executive she connected with at A&M Records named John McClain. John told her she needs to get out of L.A. and go to Minneapolis and record with Time Band members and R&B producers Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Now, these guys own the 80s, starting off as members of the Time, which was Morris Day's group, which really Prince formed it, but Morris Day, Jerome, and the whole mini vibe, Purple Rain, the Club First Avenue. These guys were soaking all of that up in the early 80s, and they started producing records on the side. And once they famously missed a time show because they were in the studio producing and Prince fired them from the group. It was actually a blessing in disguise because it allowed Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis to follow their passions as writers and producers. Their first writing and producing projects were an R&B group called the SOS Band. They had a song out called Just Be Good to Me, Tell Me If You Still Care, and Weekend Girl. Uh, and No One Ever Loves You. These were huge R&B hits, and it introduced the world to this Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis sound. They also produced a string of hits from Sherelle, Alexander O'Neill, who actually both of those artists worked together and were huge in the 80s. I mean, think of Tender Love from the Force MDs, Encore from Cheryl Lynn, or New Edition's Any Heartbreak album, which was one of the biggest albums in New Edition's career. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were behind that. So Janet arrives in freezing cold Minneapolis on her own for the first time at 19. For six weeks, she records Control with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. At the hotel she was staying at, there were some men who were verbally abusive to her. Instead of calling for help, she confronted them and backed them down. That experience was the genesis of the song Nasty and What Have You Done For Me Lately, which were singles off of the album. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis famously said they wanted to make an album for Janet that would be in every black household. They wanted to make the blackest album of all time. This was going to surprise a lot of people. Well, Janet was a big fan of the time, and she actually came to our shows, which was kind of cool. Wow. And, um, and then she'd work with Leon Silvers, and so we had a chance to meet her in the studio with Leon. So we kind of already knew each other a little bit, but John McClain had someone else for us to produce at A&M, and that artist decided that she didn't want to work with us. And so he apologized. He said, man, I'm really sorry about that, but can I, uh, is there anybody else on the roster who you think you'd like to do? And we said, send us the roster. So we sent the roster, and Terry and I looked at the roster, and we went down right to Janet's name, and we said, Janet, we'll do Janet. Right. And he said, well, you want to do two or three songs? And we said, no, we want to do the whole album. He's like, you do? I was like, yeah. Because in our minds, we knew it's all about inspiration, right? It's all, do people inspire you? Like when if somebody would say the name of somebody, a song immediately pops in our head like, oh, we got this. We, we got this. With Janet, it was like, oh, we got, oh, yeah, we know exactly what to do. Because what, to me, what was missing, we knew she could sing. But what happened was the first two albums she did, two things. One was, it wasn't really her choice to do those albums. It right. was the dad, yeah. you know. Yeah. And that was part of it. The other part of it was when Janet was young, she had all this, I call it feistiness, right? Mm -hmm. She had all this attitude and feistiness, right? Mm -hmm. And none of that was apparent in those albums. Right. So we were like, if we could give her tracks that have that feistiness and then she can sing and get that back, mm -hmm. we thought that was the magic thing. But we knew we had to do that in Minneapolis. We couldn't right. do that we in L.A. That we all thought of Janet as Penny on Good Times and Charlene on Different Strokes. There wasn't much sexuality about Janet Jackson at the time or aggressiveness, so Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis knew the world would be shocked by this album. I asked her about the energy around Control. A few things happened. I mean, there was a, a, 
a, a, a great change in my life, but also working with Jimmy and Terry, meeting up with them for the first time, connecting, uh, and going to Minneapolis and, and writing and recording with them, and, and also wanting to make that change as opposed to not doing other uh, writers, producers' work, but doing something of your own, expressing uh, the ins and outs of, of your own life and, mm-hmm. and, and having... A voice, having something that you wanted to express what was going on with you. When Janet came to town, it was just her and a a girlfriend of hers, and we just rode around, went to the lake, went to the club, you know, we just hung around. We never went to the studio, but we talked. And after about four or five days of that, she said, when are we going to go to work? And we said, oh, we're working. And we showed her the lyrics to what ended up becoming Control. Right. And she looked at the lyrics and she said, oh my God, this is what we've been talking about. And we said, yeah. And she said, so wait, whatever we talk about, that's what we're going to write about? Yes. And it was like a light bulb went off. It was like, oh, my God. Well, then I want to, did you see that guy at the club? It was, he was nasty. I don't want to, I don't like nasty. What, okay, great. Let's write it, you know. And that was the kind of the revelatory moment for her where she became creative. And I always say the difference was we just ask her her opinion and let her tell her story. On February 4th, 1986, the album Control was released. The first single was What Have You Done For Me Lately? It slowly started to build. Janet was totally off the radar at this time. There wasn't much fanfare initially because she had no musical body of work that we could all connect with. During this time, videos were very important marketing tools for artists, and the energy of each video increased. And Janet was just not an urban artist. She was becoming a pop artist fueled by MTV as they continued to embrace each video she would release. By April of 1986... A few months after the album was released, it went gold. By the time they had finished promoting this album, she had five top five singles, including Control, Nasty, Pleasure Principle, which had an amazing dance sequence which inspired so many dancers and singers, Let's Wait a While, Funny How Times Fly, and the biggest song which went number one pop was When I Think of You. She had four number one urban singles, The fifth song was number three on the R&B chart, so you might as well say she had five number one singles. Janet owned 1986. Control sold over 10 million copies. Like her brother, Michael, seven years earlier, Janet had her breakthrough album and was now a superstar. We talked about the reaction to this album. No, I did. I mean, you never know. And I, I love creating music and you, you, I do what I do because I really love it. And I, I didn't know if it was going to be successful or not, but I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was really excited that uh, people liked it as well. Janet would now have a legion of fans. She would take three years before she released her follow-up album, Rhythm Nation 1814, which would usher in an even more empowered Janet, who not only kept that same energy from control, she would use her celebrity to talk about social issues, racism, poverty, and what was happening in the world. Uh, 1989 comes around and you, you come out with Rhythm Nation. Um, an album which you really made a lot of political statements and an album which I learned that Janet Jackson is re- heavily involved in young people and getting young people to- together and-, and being involved in their life and, and things like that. That's is my, that your yes. two-way? Yes, it wow. is. Wow. What um, famous person is two-way in you right now? 
Yeah, my, my assistant's going to answer you too. Wait, go right ahead. Answer the question. It's it's always been very important to mm-hmm. me, and I've always uh, been involved uh, with different charities, and and I, th- I think education is very important. And working with the United Negro College Fund, working with America's Promise, I mean, different organizations that I've I've worked with. I think it's very important. AIDS uh, projects, and I feel that we're all put here on earth for a reason. We all have a job to mm-hmm. do. And I, mm-hmm. I feel that my job is to help people through mm-hmm. what I know best, which is music. So I, I try to do all that I possibly can. And I, I want to give more of my time than uh, just financial support. The beats were massive on these albums. I mean, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis unleashed some amazing tracks on Janet. And she did not disappoint on the videos. A lot of money went into each video. Control had five top five singles. Rhythm Nation had seven top five singles. Led by Miss You Much, the title track Rhythm Nation, Escapade, All Right, which if you have never seen this video, you got to check it out. It was an ode to her love of old movies, and it featured the late Heavy D. Come Back to Me, Black Cat, Love Will Never Do, and State of the World. The album had singles released for over two years, selling almost 20 million copies. Janet would do her first world tour off of this album, breaking records for the best debut tour of any female artist in history. She resonated with her fans. And in my geekness, I told her how much she resonated with me as well in this interview. Well, I take that as a compliment. Okay. Uh, Thanks. <laughs> you know, it's I always do what's going on in my life, right about that, and, okay. and just making sure things feel good for myself. It, okay. it, it has to start there for okay. me, as opposed to trying to, to please the public. Hopefully, I'll be on the same page in the end, but it's about pleasing me. Like her brother, her fans were inspired by her, and I shared a story about one fan's inspiration and her reaction. So you understand the power of the artist that you are and, and how you affect people's lives. I, I was, I don't remember if it was a clip in the icons or if it was something else that I saw that there was two young ladies who went back and finished high school. Oh, you mean Kia and Keisha? Yes. Yes. Because of you. Yes. That's, that's actually happened a few times. Okay. And that was one of the times we actually documented it and they wound up giving me their tassels and, you, you know, someone in their family said, well, why would you do that? She doesn't want him. She probably threw him away mm-hmm. and, and all this other stuff. So when I, I, I did a, I got an award from a, at the Image Awards uh, to have them framed, they actually came backstage and started crying because that's what they were told. And to, and to know that I actually had kept them and was giving them back to them. I mean, they're the ones that they're the ones that did all the work. They, they, they really deserve to have them more okay. so than me. I was just maybe just a little inspiration or a little push is all that I gave them. Okay. It must be some feeling to have that kind of success. And I asked her how it felt. It feels great. I mean, it makes what I do worthwhile. Like I said, I love creating. I love writing. But also um, just being able to touch one person's life and hopefully making a difference. That's that's true success to me, and knowing that they will eventually go on and touch someone else's life, and it will, you know, it'll snowball. So that that's really what it's about for myself. Janet would take several more years off between albums, and we talked about why she would take so much time off between projects. Mm-hmm. I do believe in kind of disappearing and mm-hmm. and not, you know, kind of have people maybe hopefully 
not get tired of you and okay. and kind of want you back, mm-hmm. hopefully, mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to always being in their faces. Okay. Um, uh, I read a lot of scripts. I uh, There were other things going on in my life as well. Rhythm Nation was such a tremendous success. I mean, you couldn't have scripted this more perfect following up from Control. And guess what? She had now fulfilled her contractual obligation to A&M Records, which would make her the most eligible free agent in music history up until that point. Every label courted her. They wanted to sign her. And a very wealthy billionaire named Richard Branson, who owned the Virgin brand, gave Janet an estimated 30 to $50 million recording contract, which in that moment was the most expensive deal ever. It would only last a few weeks, though, because Michael Jackson redid his deal with Sony for $65 million a few weeks later. Them Jacksons are something else, right? Janet was now on Virgin Records, and she released her fifth album, Janet, in May of 1993, led by six top five singles, That's the Way Love Goes, If, Again, Because of Love, Anytime, Anyplace. She debuted number one, selling almost 400,000 albums in the first week. Janet proved Richard Branson was a good businessman on this deal. The album went on to sell over 14 million copies, continuing her record-breaking successful run. Around the time of this interview, again, this was a 2000 when I recorded this interview with her, MTV did an icon special on Janet with so many current-day artists paying homage. It was really awesome. You, you know, I... I meet some of the fans before the show and after the show, and they, and they tell you how you've inspired their lives. But I never in a million years thought that uh, with the different artists that are doing so well today that I, I was of any inspiration in their lives or, or to their you know, their careers. And, and, and just to know that and for them to share their stories with me, it, it, it really made me feel really good. Mm-hmm. Janet had definitely inspired the next generation of artists. You could really see it in this special. Who are you like? Who do you like right now? I love Destiny's Child. I love Pink. Um, I love Macy. Mm-hmm. Everybody that performed on the show, I mm-hmm. listened to, and I've you know had their CDs in in in, uh, in my car. Okay. Yeah. So I'm I'm definitely big fans. Okay. Uh, Outcast. I absolutely love them. I love Drew. Yeah. He's cool. Yeah. And when they came out with Miss Jackson, when they walked out singing that song, I was like, wow, how appropriate. I mean, I never would have thought about, I know the song has nothing to do with you, but just right. the way it kind of worked out, that was kind of cool. And then they started to show off with it. Outcast set it off performing Miss Jackson, but changed up the song to make it about Janet. She had a love for hip hop, which was exploding in the nineties. And we discussed the artists that she liked. Yeah. So you're big into hip hop? Yeah. Okay. So uh, well, give us some of the hip-hop artists that you listen to. I mean, we know you work with Busta Rhymes, and uh, you did a couple songs with him and, and did that excellent, incredible video with him. What are, what are some of the other artists you like? Oh, I like Common. Okay. Wow, really? It. Yeah. The Light? Did you like that song, The Light? Yeah. Wasn't that great? <laughs> well, you, you say wow as if you wouldn't expect. No, not that I wouldn't expect. But, Me too. you know, Common was, see, Common's been around for a long time. Are you like a recent fan or from the beginning when he started? No, I just, you know, I'm still learning a lot about him. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I just think he's a really, really cool artist. Yeah. 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 Is <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> someone's pager. Yeah, I so. thought it was mine for a second. <laughs> Remember when I asked her about taking time off between albums and she talked about reading scripts. In 1993, she starred alongside Tupac in the John Singleton movie Poetic Justice. Janet was a pop princess. Started off on an urban lane, was but was not like most urban artists. 
This was another side of her that we saw, including love scenes and profanity. And Tupac, who was sort of hip hop's bad boy at that time, was always getting into something. So there was a lot of controversy about them two doing a movie. In fact, she insisted, according to Tupac, that he take a HIV test before they would film any scenes together. This movie was a totally different side to Janet that we weren't used to seeing, and we discussed that. There were other things going on in my life as well, and, and uh, what really brought that about was uh, the change that had come while making Poetic Justice. It just it, it completely changed me. It, yeah. it, 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 not that it, it opened up another side of me that was there that I only allowed certain people to see, or one person in particular. And then I decided to uh, uh, share with the public, really. I felt comfortable in sharing it with the public. And cool. I guess just growing up a little bit, coming into your womanhood, I suppose. Well, yeah, you had potty mouth in that movie. Potty mouth? Yeah, you cursed a lot. <laughs> Potty mouth. Yeah, that's, that's the first funny. time I ever heard you curse. I was like, wow. That was the first time I ever heard me curse. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> wow, man. Janet is, you know, because yeah. let me tell you something, Janet. A lot of people out there listening right now, they think they see you on the videos and they see the family that you come from and they see all the success that you guys have had. And they put you on this pedestal and they just think that you guys don't have the problems that normal people have. I mean, you're rich and famous and they feel, oh, every life is so good for you. But you guys experience the same things, and I've seen it through your albums. I, I see the, I almost see like the, I see it breaking out of you. Like you know, you you're saying it's like each album comes along, and there's more that we learn about you. And people th- probably think of you as Penny on Good Times, like that. That's you, just sweet little girl with a pretty smile, or Charlene on, on uh, on different strokes. And and you really are so much beyond that. There's so much more to you. And I think that. Um, you know, in in your trials and tribulations in your life, you know, I'm sure that that probably bothers you that people kind of keep you in that box because there's so much more that you have going on, right? I'm no different than everyone else. Mm-hmm. It's just that I happen to be in the public eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go through the same things, entertainers. And um, sometimes it's even worse. It's magnified because of being entertainers. And mm-hmm. it's it's times 10. Um but we have heartaches and pains and pleasures just like everyone else does. Earlier in the podcast, I spoke about Janet's first marriage and its quick annulment to James DeBarge. Throughout the 90s, we thought she had a boyfriend, but it turned out that they were secretly married. And then it only came out when they had gotten divorced. And around this interview was when they got divorced. Janet was a single woman as I was talking to her. And we talked about how does dating Janet Jackson work? Man, I had a lot of questions and my own proposal for a date. How hard is it for Janet Jackson to date? I mean, how do you go about getting a date? And do you, are you an imposing person on the people that you date? Do you date normal guys? Or do you date guys that are celebrities? How does it work? No, I date. I've dated guys that are celebrities and mm-hmm. I've dated what you Call normal guys. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, a non-celebrity. You're, you're saying nine to five. Yeah, or, yeah. Or is that what? You're, yeah, what just you're a, a normal, yeah, like a no, person I that's have, not a superstar. Definitely. So, what does he? Does he come up to you and just push up on you, like, "Hey, what's up, Janet? Well, How you no, doing?" Well, d- 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 well, that's what all for you talks about is mm-hmm. wanting really someone to come up to me and ask me out because I've always, the guys I've gone out with, I've always asked them out. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. Since would you day like one. to go out tonight? Actually, I would love that, but I can't. Oh. Unfortunately, See, you me I, down. no. I have. I really do have to work. Okay. And I have to go back to New York. Okay. 
but you know, I'm gonna give you my business card. So we'll we'll we'll, we'll, we'll we're gonna go out on a date one you time. You did that already. Yeah, I did. You noticed that I slipped it to you when I first yes, came in. Yes, I slick. did. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> all right. So a normal guy, you usually ask guys out. So you know, a normal guy can come to you and 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 see you somewhere. And if you happen to be attracted to him, or you might see a little spark, if he was bold enough to ask you out, you might actually go out on a date with him. Yes, quite possibly. Yeah. Okay. All right. And I, 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 well, my friends say it's because I am an entertainer that they are intimidated, and that's why I really don't get asked out, really. Not that I've never been asked out, but it's always by someone you don't want to be. And I'm not saying this to you oh, either. She's no, touching me. I'm, I love I'm this. Not <laughs> but, 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 you know, it's, it's, it, it gets like that sometimes, so. It's, it's, it's fine by me, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be nice for a change, but mm-hmm. it's fine by me. Okay, so let me be upfront. I was literally two months away from getting married. The label rep, Beverly Garvin, was friends with my fiance. Now, publicly, we knew that Janet was married to Renee and that she was now single. And in my head, I wondered and then said it out loud, how does one ask Janet Jackson out on a date? And why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew I was getting married, but I was sure she gets this all the time. So at the end of the interview, I kind of circle back to the date question. And, you know, I'm looking forward to our date in the future when you're not working and you're not busy. Well, maybe when I come back with the tour, if I have an off day. I'm going to hold you to that, Janet. You can take me out. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to take you on a regular date to a regular restaurant. and We're going to have a good old regular time. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. You remember that. Okay, don't you don't you forget. I'm not forgetting it. I've said Philly, Jersey, Delaware. You know, come on, me and Janet, we're gonna go out on this date. The Virgin Records rep at the time, Beverly Garvin, shares her recollection of this moment. One of my fondest memories of working with Janet Jackson was when Kobe Cole from Philly uh, was interviewing her. I felt like they had a casual, flirtatious thing going on there. <laughs> And then I realized that Colby kind of asked her out on a date, and she said, yeah, I would go out with you. And that's when I realized I had to step in. So you know I'm looking at Janet Jackson and the look she gave me, and I was like, oh, maybe I really have a chance to take her out. But Bev cut all that off. As I waited for Colby to say he was kidding, I realized that I had to say something because he was getting married in approximately two months. So I said to him, Kobe, do you think now is a good time for you to tell Janet that you're getting married in two months? At which she was completely shocked about. Yeah, she was shocked and maybe even a tad bit annoyed. Who knows? But uh, Beverly kind of let that cat out the bag. And this is Beverly on why she felt that she needed to step in. I realized that it was getting serious because I thought about her ex-boyfriends and her ex-husbands and realized that they all look like Kobe, uh, tall, light-skinned, very fine hair. So, uh, yeah, I mentioned it to her. He's getting married in two months, and she was shocked. And then I had to go and tell Simone what happened, which was pretty funny. Uh, how many years? I guess I'm, I'm assuming it's been 17 years that you guys have been married. What a beautiful relationship. I love watching you and Journey. Uh, and I'm glad that I stepped in when I did. Yeah, 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 Bev. Glad you stepped in. And of course, I go home to my then fiance, who was now my current wife, and tell her the story of what happened. And this was her recollection of how she responded. So when Kobe came home and told me that he asked Janet out on a date, and the the first thing I said was, well, what did you say? 
what did she say? Did she say yes? And we had a coworker, Megan, who was confirming that this actually happened and that Janet was really disappointed when she found out that Kobe was getting married. And I told him, why did he say anything? He should have went on a date. What an amazing story that would be right before you got married, that you went on a date with Janet Jackson. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Janet Jackson would unfortunately go on to have a wardrobe malfunction at the 2004 Super Bowl a few years after this interview while performing with Justin Timberlake. The immediate reaction was not kind to her and her career. Meanwhile, Justin, who was just as guilty of what happened, continued with his career with no issues. A lot of folks are still upset with him. In fact, there was talk that maybe he would bring Janet out on his return to the Super Bowl this past year. Regardless, Janet Jackson is an icon and one of the best-selling artists of all time. And like her big brother, Michael Jackson, she will forever live in our hearts for making some amazing music. Thank you for listening to the Backstory Podcast. Special thanks to Janet Jackson, DJ One Plus Two on the production, Beverly Garvin, and my better half, Simone, for being a good sport. Thanks for listening. Get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast you can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level 